Hi, I'm Michelle Ward. As a mom, I've looked my children in the eyes with love and hoped I can lead them toward a bright, wonderful future. But as a neurocriminologist who's been studying violent crime for the last 20 years, I've also quietly hoped that at the very least, I'm not raising a future serial killer. And if you can relate to that taboo thought, congratulations, you've just found your new favorite podcast. This is How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. Today, we are going to be talking about teen dating violence, which is not something we hear about um, a lot, but we should because it's shockingly prevalent, which I didn't realize until recently. And to go over all of this with me today is my aunt, Margaret. And I know it's really suspicious that I'm always bringing my family members and my best friends in here. (laughs) It's not because we can't get guests, I promise. It's because I bring in somebody who I think matches or has something to add. My aunt's name is Margaret, but I call her Dee Dee. So if if it gets a little confusing, too bad. Okay, so we're going to talk about a story, a girl named Katie Sudbury. I covered her story on my show, Stalked Someone's Watching, but I couldn't cover it in the way I wanted to because it was TV. And the beauty of podcasts is you can kind of say whatever the hell you want to say. So I, I, I wanted to dig back into this because I think it's an important problem. And I think it's a problem that really does require people to step in and do something. And there are resources, there are things to do. And again, it's one of those things where people don't know about it. So first, I'm going to tell you about the story, and then we'll dive into all of that. Katie Sudbury was born on July 5th, 1990, and she grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, with her father, Richard, her stepmother, Bobby, her stepsister, Virginia, and her brother, RJ. She is super close to her family, and she seems to be just a typical girl. From everything I read and saw, and according to her stepmom herself, Katie and Bobby, the stepmom, are super close. And Katie just enjoys all the stuff that teens enjoy. She likes arts and crafts, fishing, playing soccer, listening to music. Everyone describes her as laid back and gets along with everybody. So, you know, she seems to be kind of a sweet and easygoing person, but she's also doing really well and excelling in, in school. But sometimes these laid back personalities are too nice. And in September of 2006, at the beginning of her junior year of high school, Katie meets a new kid at school through mutual friends, and his name is Daniel Bird. He's new to the school, and they instantly become friends. And as it goes in high school, friendships grow into dating, and by December, they're in a pretty serious relationship. And this is actually Katie's first boyfriend, and she's really excited about it, obviously. And for the next five to six months, things are absolutely great between them. Um, Katie's parents really like Daniel, and Katie is noticeably happy. Daniel pays her loads of attention, which she liked, and he seems to be a perfect gentleman. He's thoughtful. He buys her gifts. He takes her out on romantic dates. And he even shows up every morning to walk her to school. So toward the end of May, however, things take a turn. They start becoming a little bit different. Daniel begins to become possessive of Katie. And it's kind of subtle at first, where it's like maybe a couple too many calls, but then as it does, it escalates. And then he starts calling way too frequently. He always needs to know exactly what she's doing, exactly who she's with. And then he starts to doubt her and become suspicious when she answers him. So if the call drops, if she has bad reception, he starts making accusations about where she is, what she's doing. You, You know, we've all heard this before. This is the red flag. It's one to not 
be ignored. It's rare for a relationship to go from controlling to not controlling. It can happen, but you certainly have to be on top of it. And in this case, you know, the possessiveness, it's just not a sign of a healthy, normal relationship, especially when they're this young and they're inexperienced. It's something you really do need to pay attention to. And Often those red flags are brushed aside because people figure the teenagers are just young and immature, but I I disagree. I think this is the time to really pay attention because they don't know. They don't Mm -hmm. know what a relationship looks like. So Katie might not know that this isn't normal. Unfortunately, his possessiveness grows into paranoia and Daniel would accuse Katie of cheating on him if she waited too long to return a text or a call. She receives hundreds of calls and texts that start early in the morning and continue until way after she's gone to bed. So Katie is too young and inexperienced to really recognize all of these warning signs. This is not love. It's power. It's control. It's insecurity and desperation on Daniel's side. Katie's parents, however, do recognize that this is not okay. Yeah, right? Like, thankfully, they're she's open and they can see it. They have a close enough relationship where it's not being lost on them. So they sit her down and they encourage her to end things with Daniel. I don't think she's at the point where she's ready to end things with Daniel, but they all agree that Katie is going to go spend some part, if not all, of the summer with her mom who lives in a different state. So people are feeling a little bit more optimistic about that. But, of course, geography does nothing to make Daniel relent And with each passing month, he's just becoming more and more possessive and controlling. And I think probably when she was out of town, his panic was increased because he has less contact with her. So he probably relied on the texting and phone calls more than he normally did because he would see her at school. So I think it escalated that summer. But then they get back to Phoenix in September of 2007. And Katie decides to open up even more about her relationship with Daniel to her brother's girlfriend, Lauren Carnes. And when she shows Lauren the sheer number of Mm. texts and calls that Daniel sends daily, Lauren becomes quite concerned. So Lauren tells Katie, this is not normal behavior. You need to be careful. But at that point, it's just texts and calls. So Lauren didn't, you know, she didn't take it any further. She was concerned. And no physical... No, nothing physical. So around that same time, Katie starts working five days a week at Toys R Us. And during her shifts, Daniel shows up and begins following her around the store, demanding her attention. And people, anyone who loves you will respect your work, your resources, and your livelihood and would not put that at risk. This is another, it's a big red flag if somebody's privately demanding to know where you are all the time, Mm -hmm. blowing up your phone, not respecting your time. But if they're coming into your place of work, you're not, they're not in love with you. They possess you. That is not love. Right. He looks at her as a possession. And anytime you have shifted from an autonomous person to somebody's possession, the risk of violence becomes exponential. Where are his parents in this scenario? I'm really glad you brought that up. We will come to where his parents are in a moment, because at this point, I don't think anybody really knows what's going on with the parents. So obviously, Daniel parading around Toys R Us is embarrassing, but it's also very problematic. And it happens so often that Katie's boss tells her to tell Daniel to stop coming by. So what does he do? He starts waiting for her outside, waits for her to get off work. And if she ever works late, he screams at her and tells her she's a liar and a cheater. That's what fall of 2007 looks like for Katie. In December, 
Katie goes and visits her brother's girlfriend, Lauren, again, back in college. And when she gets there, Lauren immediately notices a bruise on Katie's back. Yeah. She asks Katie where it came from, and Katie tries to change the subject. And then Lauren asks Katie directly, but Katie won't admit it. But Lauren feels certain that the bruise is from Daniel. And she tells Katie a story about a cousin who was murdered by an abusive boyfriend. And apparently that landed on Katie somehow in some way that made an effect, and it did increase her fear. Lauren, the brother's girlfriend, makes the tough but correct call to alert the rest of Katie's family, and they decide to hold an intervention. They explain why these behaviors are all harbinger for bad things to come and how this will never be a healthy relationship, and they're all rightfully concerned. And again, this was Katie's first relationship, so it really, the, it is incumbent upon the family to be like, look, this is what this looks like if you stay. So on December 28th, after more than six months of nearly constant harassment, Katie tells her stepmom, Bobby, that she did break up with Daniel. And Bobby, of course, is over the moon about it and thinks that this is going to be the end. But as we know, as it can go with some of these very obsessive boyfriends, the terror is far from over and Daniel is not done. The calls are incessant. He won't let go. And while Katie seems like she has a more of like pep in her step and a weight lifted off of her shoulders, Daniel's not relenting at all. They even changed Katie's number at one point, maybe two points. I, I read conflicting things, but he got a hold of the number anyway, as teens do. So at this point, Katie was definitely frightened just because things were escalating. Well, she does the right thing. She kind of dedicates herself to her schoolwork. She actively avoids Daniel. And then she's counting down the days till she graduates and goes to college because she got into NAU, Northern Arizona University, and she's thrilled to go. She's optimistic. She's going to start her new life there. But then when he doesn't stop with the texting, Katie decides she's going to make a point. She wants to drive the point home to him that it's over. And she wants to do this by collecting all of the gifts he ever gave her throughout the relationship and to drop them off. Oh. Kids, don't try that at home. In his face. Yeah, it's a bad move. When someone is becoming obsessive like this, they consider any and all contact as an invitation mm -hmm. to contact more. Disengage, as you would always say. Yeah, yeah, you just have to ignore, even though you want to shut it down, you're not dealing with somebody who's thinking normally, so normal responses are ineffective. She goes to bring this bag. He sees her coming. He jumps into the car. He is screaming and he grabs her hair and starts pulling it so hard that it's coming out in chunks. No. Yeah, he's being super violent and vicious. And so much so that a worried passerby calls 911. So the cops get there and they ask him to leave and they don't arrest him. If it had been an adult, they would have arrested him. And I don't think law enforcement takes intimate partner violence or teen dating violence very seriously because of their age, because they're teenagers. So a hysterical Katie returns home and she finds Bobby and Lauren and she tells them what happened. And they're like, uh-uh. So they hop in the car with Daniel's stuff to go return it to Daniel. Daniel comes outside and starts yelling at them and he threatens to kick Bobby's ass. Bobby's the stepmom. He's going to kick her ass. I would have had police sitting down uh, the street. Yeah, police escort would have been good here. But again, they're thinking they're dealing with a teenager too. And it's one of these things where you don't think a person's going to become violent. I mean, he had just assaulted their daughter, but I think they're thinking, okay, she's a kid. You're not going to come hurt me. So Bobby says to him, I'm not afraid of you. She said her blood was boiling. And she said this whole six months of dealing with your nasty, belligerent behavior, I'm tired of you messing with my daughter. Leave us alone. We're ending it here and now. 
So Bobby and Lauren escape unharmed by Daniel, but that does not stop Daniel from getting physical with Katie again. Then on January 17th, 2008, this is just two to three weeks after she broke up with him, Katie's at school. When out of the blue, Daniel attacks her. He ambushes her from behind. He walks up, he strips off her backpack, and he is screaming in her face saying, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? And she's petrified. She immediately notifies the school principal who does suspend Daniel for five days. But as soon as Daniel comes back to school, he attacks Katie again. On January 24th, 2007, Daniel returns and he immediately approaches Katie. He grabs her, shakes her, physically shaking her, and starts blaming her for making him do that. Katie somehow weasels out. She breaks away and she bolts, running fast. She gets to the principal's office. They call her parents. The school calls her parents and they call the police. The principal does the right thing. He expels Daniel from school. And the police officer files a report telling Bobby it is up to the DA, though, whether or not to file charges. They're deflated. Everyone's doing the right thing, but the law really can't help either. I mean, the police said that they can't really do it. It has to be the DA. So then Katie's stepmom, Bobby, gets a scary call. It's a police officer from the Phoenix Police Department. He says, ma'am, you need to go get an order of protection for your daughter immediately. Daniel has threatened to kill himself and your daughter. According to the officer, it was Daniel's mother who called to report this alarming threat. Oh, thank you, mom. Good for her. The instant that a juvenile, violent juvenile, like some a juvenile who's involved in intimate partner abuse or teen dating violence, whatever you want to call it, the second they start having homicidal and suicidal thoughts, again, their risk for violence increases substantially. We already know he can be violent. But that, him making the threats coupled with the violence we've already seen, that's 911, red flag, stop at nothing. My thought was not letting her go back to school at all. Don't even put her in the vicinity of him after. Yeah. Well, that's actually what they do here for a few days. But I don't know if they know this. Juvenile stalkers, juvenile domestic violence committers, juvenile violent daters, whatever you want to say, they can be more dangerous than their adult counterparts because of their immaturity. Immaturity, yeah. And their inability to control themselves. Remember, their brains aren't fully developed yet. They remind me of young rattlesnakes. So like young rattlesnakes have more venom and they have a lot less ability to control it. So not only should the police have been alerted, but somebody should bring him in for a mental evaluation immediately. But who will that be? Because it turns out, and I don't know if Katie's parents knew this at the time, but Daniel's home life's a mess. He was essentially just staying at his brother's house at this point. He did maintain somewhat of a relationship with his mom, and he would see her from time to time. But three weeks prior to what's going on here, Daniel held a gun to his head in front of his mother and threatened suicide over being distraught about breaking up with Katie and being kicked out of school. So we're leading up to what happens next, but this is what prompted his mom to make the call. But you need to know this too. Daniel at this time was on intensive probation. And in December, right before these incidents, right before they called the police, right before the police came after he pulled out chunks of her hair, early December 2007, a court granted a request for Daniel to be placed on less restrictive supervised probation instead of the intensive probation. And as we know, the police were informed that Daniel had threatened Katie's life because the mom reported it. 
But that probation officer decided not to revoke his probation because she did not think the threats were valid. And she was under pressure from her management not to detain juveniles. She also decided not to revoke probation because he would be 18 soon. Nobody elaborated on why this all went down like this, but you can see how law enforcement failed Katie again and again. Well, Katie's stepmother wastes no time in filing the protective order, but in court, the judge deals an unexpected blow. He says, I'm sorry, ma'am, I cannot give you an order of protection because your daughter's relationship with the young man does not fit the relationship guidelines of the law. There's relationship guidelines in domestic violence. They have to be married or living together. <laughs> I mean, is this not ass backwards? <laughs> These are minors. Like, they need to be protected by the law. Yeah. Sadly, in most cases of teen dating violence, very little is done. That's why I wanted to do this episode. Many states do allow for serious action if a, a juvenile is adjudicated, but often it's hard to get the appropriate attention of parents, police, school officials when you're dealing with a juvenile. When you're dealing with teen violence, they, teen dating violence, they, don't even, they haven't even heard of it. Like most people I've talked to haven't even heard of this. Nobody likes to label a kid either, so there's also that fear. But everybody stepped up to protect her school did, her parents did, but the law categorically failed her. So you mentioned keeping her out of the vicinity and keeping mm. her home. That's exactly what the Sudbury's decide to do for the next few days. And they made sure that when she was home, somebody was always with her. And she was literally not left alone because they all suspected he'd show up again. Meanwhile, he's gone dark. He has vanished. Nobody knows where Daniel is. Stewing. Well, and also stewing and more dangerous because that's the worst part in a horror film is when you don't know where Jason or Michael Myers mm -hmm, or anyone mm -hmm. is. Like, once they're chasing you, I feel like it's a little less scary because you know where they are, but uh, I hate that feeling. So they continue to keep her home, but that next Sunday, Bobby asks Katie if she wants to take classes at home still until things settle down, and Katie says no, she's going back to school. She wants to, she doesn't want to fall behind, and she wants to be with her friends. So Bobby reluctantly agrees to let her attend classes on the condition that she has a ride to and from school, no walking. So the next morning is January 28, 2007, and Katie gets ready to return to school, but she's on guard for Daniel. She knows that he could pop up. Katie's friend picks her up from her house and takes her to school. However, on the way back, something comes up for that friend or a different friend, whoever was supposed to take her home, can't take her all the way and drops her a few blocks away from her house. Katie let her guard down a little bit because she didn't see Daniel all day, and so she agrees and she walks those final blocks alone. As Katie approaches her house, she's only a couple houses away from her home. She faces her worst nightmare. Daniel pops out of a nearby alley holding a duffel bag. The terror of seeing him only multiplies when he pulls out a shotgun from the duffel bag and he tries to grab Katie. Katie, as I said, is only a couple houses away from home and she bolts. She runs for her life and she attempts to jump the fence to get into her neighbor's backyard. But he catches her and he pulls her down from the fence and he throws her to the ground and he kills her. Oh. And then he kills himself. Katie's neighbor discovers the bodies and calls the police. Then Katie's stepmom Bobby gets the harrowing call from a friend. Two people in the neighborhood had just been killed. Bobby's heart sinks, but then there's a knock on the door. It's the detective, and now she knows their lives will never be okay again. Oh, God, that's horrible. Okay. This is our sorority now. I'm going to put oh, it together. No, yeah, it These are children. Months after the murder, Bobby gets a call from State Senator 
Jonathan Payton. And he says he's trying to get stricter. He calls them domestic violence laws passed that would give victims like stalking victims, teen um, dating violence victims, give them greater legal protection by lowering the requirements to get a personal protective order. He says, I was just talking with somebody from the Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and they told me about Katie Sudbury. They told me her story. They asked if I wanted to meet Bobby Sudbury. So together they created Katie's Law. Katie's Law passed in June of 2008, and the law is really simple. Those in dating relationships have protection under the law so long as it's romantic or sexual in nature. So today, Bobby Sudbury leads this nonprofit organization she founded called Katie's Way. She travels across the country sharing her daughter's story to educate people about the dangers of violence and stalking among teens. Well, good for her that she's doing that, but my God, nothing can bring that poor little girl back. Yeah, it's horrible. Okay. I'm not going to cry. No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I did ask for a Kleenex earlier on. You did? You knew? Yeah, I did. <laughs> I was like, why does she need a feeling? It couldn't be a good story. Their website's landing page for Katie's Way reads, Katie's Way advocates for healthy teen relationships by providing education, skills, and tools for youth and their allies. So let's talk about why that's so freaking important. Ready for a stat? Nearly one and a half million high school students will experience physical abuse from a dating partner in any single year. One and a half million every year will be physically abused. That's not just emotional manipulation. And I wonder how many of the parents of these boys know what their sons are doing. Now, his mother saw him with a gun to his head, so hello, that got her attention, but he wasn't even living with her. Right, right. And she did the right thing, but by then, I think it had escalated and she hadn't known. But right then, everyone needed it to jump in and remove him. I'm going to guess there are stats on the homes of these boys, how they're raised, by whom. and Well, how. it's a little murky. So according to a 2007 youth risk behavior survey, approximately 10% of adolescents nationwide report being the victim of physical violence with a romantic partner, which is, you know, that's a lot. That's 10% of U.S. teens have been a victim of dating violence. But they don't talk about the perpetrators. Some states don't even include teenagers in their protective laws. Like their dating relationships have no protection under the domestic violence laws. So they can't even get restraining orders. But it's violence against another person, period. Right. I know. If somebody came up and started pulling my hair out and knocking me down, and I would, I would be able to report that. I'd be able to have him maybe arrested for a minute. They're dismissing it like they used to with domestic violence. You remember how it used to be like, oh, that stays in the home. It wasn't Yeah, until- now it's huge, obviously. Well, and here's another kicker. Only 33% of the teens tell anyone. Well, that's the thing. They're embarrassed. Are they all having sex already with these guys? Because that's it takes it to another level, yeah. I think. I mean, and, I think teens have sex. I think they just do. In my time. In, in your my time. Talk, in my no, day. Nobody had sex. <laughs> no one wanted of. pregnancies. <laughs> um, because then that gives them that also ownership feeling, I think, of, yeah, you're really mine all completely. These kids are not equipped to handle the the emotions and the panic. And obviously he has something going on. Obviously he's unwell. And if this is happening to one and a half million kids every year, there's a lot of people who aren't well. And I think we're looking at impulsivity. We're looking at lack of emotional regulation. We're looking at stuff that people should pay attention to. But here's the thing. 
they don't give a ton of warning signs. You can't look at your little four, six, seven, ten-year-old boy and be like, oh God, I bet he's going to abuse his girlfriend. No. It doesn't look like that. And here's another shocking statistic. 81% of parents who were polled do not believe teen dating violence even exists. They don't believe it's an issue. And 80% of school counselors said they wouldn't know what to do if somebody reported teen dating violence to them. School counselors. So are we still in the dark ages then? I mean, it has been stepped up and... Kind of. These are recent stats. Mom is trying to bring awareness, but those are recent stats. So then One and a half good. million kids suffer this every year, but 80% of the school counselors said they wouldn't know what to do if somebody reported it to them. Well, Katie did finally share it with her parents, but how many girls are embarrassed to do that? Right. Or Well, and then there's that side of it. If the parent knows or feels that that's going on or has a hint of that, he's a horrible person. You can't see him anymore. And then, you know, when your daughter's dating even someone, you think, that's just not the right one. My daughter said to me one time, you don't like I'll say his name was Bozo. You don't I'll say his name was Bozo. You don't like Bozo, do you, Mom? And I said, well, I don't dislike him as a person. I'm sure he has many good qualities. Do I see him as the father of my future grandchildren? Hell no. Yeah. And then eventually she got to see on her own. But if I had said, he's a loser and you cannot marry him, you need to break up with him tomorrow, you know, people kind of dig their heels in. Yeah. So, For the record, I didn't like Bozo either. No, no, none of us really liked Bozo. And Bozo didn't like me and my husband either. Uh, well, that's so, what happened. And that was the thing. She said, if you don't like my parents, that's a deal breaker for me. So that was part of her decision in, in leaving him. And good for her because that is one of the red flags they say to look for when they start limiting. They, they want to mm -hmm. separate you from your parents mm -hmm. as a kid. That's what we're going to talk about next, which is what do you do if you're the parent of the victim or the abuser, because I dug deep for resources. No one's talking about what you do if your kid is the aggressor. Yeah. You know, we're, and we'll dig into that. But as you just said, she, you picked up on a red flag, she picked up on a red flag, but let's tell everybody like kind of what those red flags are. So educators, parents, whoever is hanging out with teenagers, you got to familiarize yourself with teen dating violence and the symptoms and the, what, what the, it doesn't always look like what you think it's going to look like. The aggressor is having more problems managing anger, frustration, difficulty with their emotions. They're lacking mature social skills and awareness more so than before. They're getting too serious too fast. And I say this in any age. Anytime the trajectory of a relationship is sped up, mm -hmm. huge red flag. It indicates an insecurity on the person who's pushing it. And that can lead to possessiveness, control. That can lead to abuse. It's always bad if someone's like, "You're my girlfriend right now. You're not dating anybody else. We're gonna do this. We're gonna get. We're gonna be engaged by the time we're this. You're gonna marry me. That's not good." Which also brings me back to the don't have sex right away. Make boundaries to begin with that someone will respect too. You know, it's the old thing. Yeah. Well, and at least do not. I mean. Make sure if you are having sex, it is with someone who respects you because there's a fine line in these cases between physical abuse and sexual abuse in these relationships yeah, too that people right. aren't talking about. Right. And a lot of pressure on these girls to participate in sex acts they didn't want to. And look, a lot of relationships, teen relationships are safe, healthy relationships with mutual respect. But these are the signs you got to look for. And number six was exactly the one you just mentioned. They try to isolate the teen from their family and friends. That's consistent as we've seen through all other relationships too. It's when they try to isolate your resources, and I mean emotional resources, that's because they know they need to do that to control you. Yeah, I think the two colors can come out. If you're waiting for that 
relationship to develop over a period of time, a person can only keep their true colors hidden for so long. And oxytocin that you're experiencing in these new love feelings, Mm -hmm. it's 18 months for that to wear off to where like you don't have those rushes every time you see the person. You really, it's really hard to assess the seriousness of your feelings until that hormone's not surging through you all the time. And then there's like the obvious signs too, like acting jealous, possessive, trying to control their significant other, always checking up on them demanding constant attention. And then here's the one that we saw with Katie. We saw all of them, but the one that made a sharp left turn is won't accept if the significant other breaks up with them. And then it just ramps up from there, physical violence, pushing, shoving, grabbing, hitting, and then manipulating them into sexual activity. We all know what those big ones look like. And both the victim's parents and the aggressor's parents have to pay attention. If your daughter or son, it can, it can be flipped. It's tends to be a lot more violent um, when the male is the aggressor. But the teen girls sometimes are just as guilty of hitting and slapping. Oh, sure. But let's say you're the mom and you your daughter is dating somebody who's exhibiting these characteristics. You and I have talked about this before. You have to be emotionally observant, but you have to talk to them carefully about this. And you can imagine why. Because hmm. they're not going to tell you. No, no, you do have to be observant. And there's that book um, I read many years ago, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. Mm. Sometimes we're so busy, but, and even being friends, I was always good friends with my daughter's friends and my son's friends. So when they felt that there was something going on, nothing like this, thank goodness I didn't have, but there there were times where they would tell me, you know. The friends would. Yeah my daughter's upset about a certain thing or my son is upset about a certain thing. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. Make sure you make friends with your children's, your friends, children's because, friends because um, they might you know, encourage their friend to, to speak to their parents. The other thing is one night I was having dinner with my grown son and daughter and I stepped away to the restroom. I came back and they said, you know, while you were gone, we were talking to each other about you and, and that the thing that we appreciated the most about you as a mom was that we felt respected. Ah. And um, so I cried a little bit. You cried a little bit? I cried a little bit. You do cry. cry. But yes, I I think so many kids, if they don't feel respect, just do what you're told. And Mm -hmm. just, you know, I don't have to tell you why. And um, they're they're little human beings. Yeah, with big feelings. Really big feelings. And I think if you respect them, they'll respect you back. Well, and I think what you're hitting on is the next point of like, when they do open up to you, Don't be judgmental. Right. Oh, yes. Be respectful because they'll clam up. I know there's a term for this way of communication, of working through problems. I know there's a name for it. Somebody came up with it. Mirroring. Uh, That's usually what you I don't think that was. Sorry. Jump the gun. Is that the name? Is that the name? I don't know. Where you and I have a problem with one another, we're husband and wife or whatever we are. (gasps) That one. It's mirroring. Where you are only allowed to say back what you heard. Okay, that is the name. All right. So I've heard of it, you know, for couples, right? We have a beef. I'm going to listen to you first. You tell me exactly what, and I can only ask you more questions about how you feel. Right. And then it's my turn, and I can only, you can only ask me questions to further understand how I feel. Now, we've both been fully heard, and we can say, oh my, oh my I never meant that, or oh gosh, that you took that the wrong way. This is really what I meant, whatever. Why not do that with your children? And I have done it. I have done it with my kids on occasion. You know, what? tell me exactly what you feel about that. And you're not allowed to respond in this. And you cannot, you can only ask questions to further fully understand the other person. 
So we do that in Imago therapy. You ask a question or the person tells you their beef and you have, they get to talk until they're done talking. And then you have to repeat back to them. Repeat basic, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, what I heard you say is this. To make sure you really understood. Did I understand that correctly? And you can't react or respond to it. Right. But you have actively heard it and you have, you've absorbed it and you can repeat it back Mm -hmm. and you can't respond to it. It's frustrating. But why not try that with the kids? But how healthy is that? Yeah. And for your child to say, wow, my parent really understands my feelings on this. Yeah. You know what, son, daughter, I was a kid once too. It was a different age when I was younger, but I'm here. I'm your parent. I love you more than anybody else. I want to hear what you really have to say. And I'm not judging it because you're your own individual. I just, it would be a gift for me if you could share with me your true feelings. And, you know, I think we as parents, we think our job is to respond and fix. Oh, yeah. Why wouldn't you want to give that child the best upbringing and make it feel the most loved and most heard? I think you're absolutely right about that. And I think this in this particular delicate situation, it's a really good approach. Because the other thing is your instinct is going to be, and rightfully so, you may not see that boy again. Look at in, in how many police officers have gone on a domestic violence call and been shot themselves and they're there, suddenly the woman now is panicked because now the husband's more angry. And then, but but the, on the other hand, she loves him, maybe has a child or two or 10 with him and suddenly backs off a bit. Mm-hmm. Suddenly didn't get the help. Now the husband's got more control over her and she's more scared. And once that happens, once it's escalated to the point where you, you're bringing the, the police in and there's been violence, if you go back, if you endorse it, that that's endorsing it. If you say, I'll take you back again, mm-hmm. you've now sanctioned that behavior. Mm-hmm. You're now yep, it's okay worse. with it. Yeah. And poor Katie probably was thinking, oh gosh, you know, I don't want to get him in trouble. If oh my gosh, call the police. Oh my goodness, you know, and the, it'll be embarrassing at school and 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 oh he'll just get madder at me if that happens. Mm-hmm. All those things. Maybe if those things could have been discussed more thoroughly, perhaps. If, if, if a kid like that could then speak to a crisis hotline, yeah. even without being married, obviously, and just just get the same sort of skilled mm-hmm. knowledge that could help her extricate herself from that situation, the strength. There are, there are websites. I've, I've been looking at them. One's called Love is Respect, and it has resources for teens. They're, the teenager's not going to think to do that. No. Well, and if the parents are like, let's let's look at what is available for you. And as parents, you're scrambling in the background. You're telling the school. You're reaching out to the parents of the aggressor. You got to bring them in on this. And, and let that should be at the school. It should be posted at the school. Mm-hmm. It should be discussed at the school. We know these things go on. If any of you are being abused by someone, then report it to us. You're safe to report it to us. You're supposed to do that for bullying. How is this not bullying? Every life counts for heaven's sakes. You can't take it with a grain of salt. This is a a life and death matter. So it should be discussed in school. It should be open. Here's the number of, here's the hotline. (laughs) If this is happening to 1.5 million teens, schools need to tell them about it. Yes. It has to be out in the the open. Parents don't know about it. It has to be out in the open that everyone can freely, freely discuss it. Every kid feels completely safe to bring it up. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it needs to, we address in the curriculum many things that impact far fewer students. And if this is affecting 10% of your students, it's on you. Are there signs that I would notice in a son if I my son wasn't grown and fine as a, as a mom and or father with a son in high school? They don't give you a ton of warning signs that they're going to be abusive boyfriends. 
So what you're what you're looking for is this emotional dysregulation, these temper tantrums, obsessing on who they're dating, being controlling for what you can see. But that's why I also threw it back on the parents of the victim. Don't be afraid to reach out to the aggressor's parents. Team up. Oh, I would do that right Team away. Team up. And of course, in a situation like Daniel's, it was messy. And who is the parent? And yeah. that's messy. And if, you know, but you still have to try because I was reading something about, oh, keep it private. And I disagree. I think keep it really public. God, really public. So what's wrong with this boy that he's, is he angry? Why would, why is he treating an innocent girl like this? Is he, does he have built up resentment from, does he feel like he did, never had a voice at home? It, he has pent up anger. That's an angry kid, an angry, angry kid to begin with. Mm -hmm. He didn't suddenly become angry after he met Katie. She didn't piss him off and suddenly he turned into this murderer. We see these, well, I saw them all the time with our stalking cases. A lot of things can lead to it. It is a fundamental insecurity. And if you had a glimpse into this boy's head, it's a spinning vortex of hell. They obsess, they can't function. They, they're thinking about it while they're going to the bathroom and brushing their teeth. They think of nothing else, they stop eating. It is a hyper-focus, and I think it's born out of very deep-seated insecurity and rage. Rage. And it's Absolute, that combination. Absolutely rage. Rage against um, a stepmother, a stepfather. Uh, maybe, they, maybe they're, or hell, your own real parents can be abusive, obviously. Absolutely. That's, that's it all the time. That happens all the time. And then this is the way that he, he can vent his can't take it out on his parents. He can take it out on this innocent girl. And he's out of control with his feelings. That He's playing that whole... You must love me. I'm going to... You're mine. Mm -hmm. You're my. I can control this. I can control you because you're mine now and you have to be totally mine. You know what, what clinical diagnosis we see a lot is borderline in both males and females. Borderline personality disorder. And that... They'll literally say those words, if I can't have you, nobody can. Mm -hmm. And those words come out of their mouths with absurd frequency. And I think it's that fear of abandonment, that panic of this is good, but it could one day go away. Yeah. So I'm going to squeeze it until I kill her. Like it's, it comes from, I think it can come from various places. We see this in every socioeconomic status. We see it everywhere. And we see it in, in kids who have never been mistreated or abused. And then we see it in kids who are living a tough like, life like Daniel. It also boils down to that immature brain structure. Teenage boys... They're, we talk about the prefrontal cortex. They're in their 20s by the time it matures. So they have these emotions being generated by the various parts of their limbic system, and they don't have an ability to quell it. They need help. They need help. So That's here's the, what you do. Side of the equation. Well, okay, so like I read this, and this was the only thing I found directed to the parents. So I have some recommendations. I was really kind of struck by how little is out there for what to do if you think your kid is is being abusive toward another person. We talk about bullies and what mm -hmm. to do, and you yep. just said that. Yeah. We talk about what to do if your kid's a bully, but what do you do if your kid is committing teen dating violence? It's the same as domestic violence. Yep. They're just more dangerous and younger. So I read this and I liked it. It reads, any one of these behaviors or attitudes that we had read are red flags. Two or more constitute legitimate reasons for concern. And anything involving physical contact, emotional sexual manipulation, 
means that there's a real problem and you need to step in, stop the behavior and help your child find find healthy ways of expressing their emotions and relating to others. I don't like, like, like that last part. You're not going to be like, okay, let's learn how to relate. Once they're hitting people, once they're abusing their girlfriend, mm-hmm. they're kind of over there. We can't be so soft. And my thoughts on this, they're pretty aggressive. I think you need to jump in and do something immediately. I think first and foremost, you give them help. That's the most obvious low-hanging fruit. You give them all the therapy. They get all the therapy. And if you can't afford it, you find the resources where there is Mm -hmm. free therapy. And there is free therapy. And you go there and you get it. And of course, you're at the same time talking to them about boundaries and conflict resolution and emotional regulation. But I think they're pretty far gone by that point. And the second thing you do is you physically, like you, you, of course, you tell them to get out of the relationship. You encourage it. But you physically can't control them that way when they're off at school and stuff. So you go behind the scenes and you team up with the parents and you team up with the school. Remember, this is not a reflection on your parenting. And I think that's what some of the reticence and the hesitation when you're the parent of an aggressive child is the shame. But you should have none. What did I do? What did I do wrong? What, What You separate this behavior from who the person is. This is still your child. And so much of who our children are is, you know, it's right on the stars. Like, it, yeah, you were saying 50% is. I mean, at least 50% of personality and we can nudge. We can, we can make our kids the best versions of themselves with, you know, information and resources. But a lot of it is they have temperaments and predispositions that they come out with. I'm and, sure a lot of times the parents are completely clueless that their child would have even had the capability of doing such a thing. And this one doesn't come with warnings. So once you know, you have to act immediately. And, you know, I've heard this so many times. Well, you know, the kids bullying other kids must be what they're seeing at home. No. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Some of the worst bullies come from the best homes. And if it were that simple, it would be just these direct relationships. Okay, abused kids or people who are witnessing, kids who are witnessing abuse become bullies. It just doesn't work that way. It's not simple. So recognize that it isn't necessarily your bad parenting that brought the child to this point. And get in there, get involved, because there, it could be life or death. Yeah. So after you've done all that, until that child's 18, you can force. You can force some things. And if your child is still threatening, harming, harassing, whatever, another minor child, you remove them. You send them to a relative, a home. Juvenile detention, I don't care. You get rid of that kid for the time being because maybe this will be their life interrupted for a moment. But if you don't, you could lose them and another child like Katie Sudbury and Daniel Bird. If it's your child committing the aggression, it is incumbent upon you to remove the child. I know that that's a hard thing to hear. Once you hear it, though, once you know about it, you got to do something about it. And that's, like I said, the internet was saturated with information for Katie's parents. Saturated. But what if Daniel's mom, once he, she saw Daniel put a gun to her head and threatened to kill Katie and herself, where, what if she went online looking for help? She did what she thought to do, which is alert people. But I say, okay, once, once you know that your kid is doing this, you might have to involve law enforcement yourself and maybe removing them. And we see this in stalkers. Removing them from their target for long enough will often recalibrate them. Now, so for some, it doesn't. 
for some, if they are serious adult deep into stalking behavior, usually you just get a new target or you come back for your old target. But in teens, it's different. So I, I truly believe if, if they could have physically removed these two teens from each other for an extended period of time and let Daniel grow, mature, get him help. Send her to another country or something. Yeah, send her to a nunnery. Do what you got to do. <laughs> and they did, I mean, and the Sudberries did everything that they could think of to do. But I think we more we know more now. You know, and I, I think- But as you were going through that, my uh, as you kept saying, and then she went to school and then I thought, what is she doing back at school? Mm-hmm. What is she doing back at school? I would, I my, my gut is, I would say, okay, you're out of that school. We're going to send you off to Kentucky. Right. And to another school, and he's not going to know where you are. But I think parents do the same thing that law enforcement does. I think they think, I think they believe that, well, they're just kids. Yeah, but if, even, even if I had a, a that, what, that, and they didn't have a relationship, I'm just sending my kid to school, and that bully is going to bully my kid again. I'm going to take him out of school. Mm-hmm. If they're not removing that bully, then I'll remove my my child. Yeah. And I know, like, I, I hate coming down on parents because, my God, we have so much freaking pressure. Yeah. But I'm going to say these these signs, these warning signs again. And, of course, if you are the parent of somebody who's being abused, you got to look for this in your in your daughter or son's partner. But if this is, if you see this in your son, I'm saying son because that's the case we worked on. And, of course, this sounds very, like, cisgender, boy, girl. For, these, for this particular crime... I'm focusing, this can happen to anybody. This happens in the transgender community. It's, but the stats are listed just male, female. So I'm reading them as such. So if your teenage child has trouble managing anger, frustration, difficult emotions, lacks mature social skills, gets too serious too fast in relationships, insults, degrades, or otherwise puts down their significant other. And you might hear that. You might listen to him on the phone. Mm -hmm. And you're like, "Uh uh-uh, you stop that right away. You get in there, you educate them, you put them in therapy, boundaries, respect, social emotional learning, right then and there, tantrums, destroying property, super possessive, trying to isolate the girlfriend from her friends and family. Mm -hmm. That's a huge one. Yeah. And all that jealousy and control. When you see that, you have to step in. You have to. And I keep saying that because it is your minor child at home. You still have legal rights over the kid, but you won't the second he turns 18. And he was 17. So time was of the essence. And then again, once it gets so obvious when it's like he won't accept that she's broken up with him, he's pushing, shoving, hitting her and, or forcing sex. Those are the the most obvious. But, you know, it's it's one of those things. And I hate to say it. I would love to say like, oh, here's the intervention here. Here's the intervention now. You can break this cycle. You can get this teenage boy into intensive therapy, remove him from this, the, the source, remove him from what he's obsessing on and help him mature and get skills. A lot of it is skills-based, but he can't learn those skills when he's in the spinning vortex of hell. Mm -mm. He has to be removed or she has to be gone. It is like putting a steak, a raw meat in front of a tiger. You can't distract the prey drive. And when somebody is hyper-focused on a target like that, consider it prey drive. Consider it beyond reasonable emotion and cognition. That is what I want to leave this podcast with with that image. And that's how urgent it actually is. Think about it. Think about when you've gotten a text or seen something that makes you panic and you're like, shh, I don't want to hear from anybody. I need to respond to this right away. Mm-hmm. Imagine living in that constant fear, that constant. And when I'm talking about fear, I'm talking about Daniel's fear. His fear of losing her is what was driving that, that obsessive, insecure, cling on to you, smother you till you die 
it's not fun for him either. No, no, no. And I haven't. I don't have sympathy for him. I'm not saying I feel sorry for this guy, but the reality is, it's a hell for him in his head. Sure. And remember, teens are so present. They cannot see beyond this relationship. They cannot see beyond high school. Shit, they can't see beyond tomorrow. So you can't expect them to understand these lifelong lessons of respect and and body autonomy and and you know she's her own person. No, 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 no. They're in the middle of the addiction, of the obsession. And you cannot expect them can't to reason. Yeah, to to reason with them. They're teens, they're young. And and he was so desperate. He did not want to live without her. And he certainly didn't want to leave her behind for someone else to live with her. And he acted like that. We see that in adults. But with a child, you have control. And guess what? You're helping your aggressive child yeah. get onto a better track and have a better trajectory. I've talked to plenty of parents whose children grew up into it murdering adults. Any one of them I spoke to would have done anything they could have to prevent that. Of course. Anything especially the ones who then lost their child to suicide afterward, murder-suicide. So, you know, it's, I found nothing on it online other than, you know, get them in therapy. And of course you do that, but I'm saying take it further. It's, of course, intensive therapy. How about inpatient in another state, if you can, if your insurance will cover that. I just, I hate to say those kind of really privileged things because, that's just not real for everybody to no, be able to no, do that. No, no, it most certainly isn't. But there are things if you search hard enough. Absolutely, I saw them. And there's, and, you'd hear about parents that do finally turn their child in because they 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 just can't handle them. And yeah. So anyway, the point is, the the step in, you do all the things. You team up with the parents. You get look at resources. You get your kid into all the therapy. You keep them home from school. Everything is focused on what you do for the victim's family. They have less power. Mm -hmm. You have the potential killer in your house. Yes, They are just trying to protect this child. Your son or daughter who's the aggressor isn't necessarily going to become a bad person. They're in a bad relationship. They're in a bad way. But I have seen it. I have seen people turn their lives around, get the help they need not become teen dating violence abusers, not graduate into domestic abuse, not graduate into stalking behavior. And this guy was clearly stalking her too. It can be turned around, but it's going to require you to do something about it, especially since you're a, they're minors and you can. Well, I'm happy to hear you say that you have seen. Yeah, no, no, I've seen people turn around. Absolutely. I have seen intensive therapy. And a lot of it is, you know, it's like cognitive behavioral therapy, talking yourself out. Okay, when I have this feeling, this is what I do. Some of them are, become medicated and that's fine too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A lot of times they go to jail and in, when they're in jail, they don't get the help they need. And then they just choose another target or they continue to fixate on the target they were separated mm -hmm. from, which becomes a problem when they are released. Yeah. But if those who were given intensive help right away have much better outcomes, have much better can't outcomes. Hurt. They can't hurt. It can't hurt, and it could kill if you don't. Mm. I just hope that some girls hear this, that uh, since it is major majority of girls that, that are in this situation, that they can be strong and and recognize the signs of this sort of thing. That any relationship should feel comfortable and should feel loving and supportive and trustworthy. And You shouldn't be afraid. You shouldn't have to ever, ever, ever be afraid. You should never. Then it's wrong. It's not love. It's it's a sickness. And yeah. And you deserve you deserve happiness and a good person to be with. There's resources we'll put up on the page. The National Teen Dating Abuse Helpline. Teens, you can call this number. It's 866-331-9474. National Teen Dating Abuse Helpline. It's 
331-9474. Again, there's Katie's Way. There's Love is Respect. Those websites are great too. And I just Googled teen dating violence and all of that came up. Not so that's there find. for you. Good. That's there for you. And by the way, and, and also if you're being a little possessive, um, maybe a little obsessive, angry, controlling boyfriend, there's some resources now for you too. Yeah, you know? please get yourself help. Get help. Help you to have a better path in your life. Because it can stop here. And by the way, there are people who are resistant to therapy. It's much better off if they're caught early like this and they're put into um, treatment programs. Some of them have personality disorders that make them very, very resistant to the treatment. But it's the outcome is far better if you get them younger, especially if you can convince them to medicate or to remain in therapy. But yeah. And those are our lifelong stalkers who we get. Those the people who go on to abuse every single domestic partner they have. Um, it doesn't always end in murder. And another great point that's brought up is how legislation needs to protect teens. If you're protecting adults in domestic violence situations, why on earth would you ignore the teen component? It's it's really shocking. And there are still a few states where the uh, teenagers are not protected under their domestic violence protections. And so they can't even file a restraining order. If you're in one of those states, champion your Congress people, your legislation to, to pass protection like this. I mean, Katie's Law and Katie's Way is a great resource to, to look into that. But I was floored. You know, this case happened in 2007, and I was floored that not everybody is protected in their state. It just makes sense to me that the schools, the kids are going through the school system. It needs to be a topic at school. It needs to be uh, uh, on the board. There has to be resources and it has to be out in the open, out in the open in the schools so that kids aren't afraid. We teach them about drugs, suicide, the effects of unprotected sex. We got to teach them about this too. And I've said this in other podcasts, we should be talking about personality disorders all the time in schools. And this, this would fall into that. And these kids are old enough for mental illness to appear. 16 to 24 is when we see a lot of that come up. And we are now accepting the fact that mental illness shows way younger. Everybody avoids talking about that. You don't want to stigmatize the kids and try not to stigmatize it. But in the event that it is stigmatized, you are still providing help for that child who's going to desperately need it. Mm -hmm. Regardless. Regardless. God bless you all out there. Yeah. Thank you, Dee Dee. Thanks My for pleasure, in. honey. Okay, this is How Not to Raise a Serial Killer, and we will see you next week. How Not to Raise a Serial Killer is a Cloud 10 Media production, executive produced by me, Dr. Michelle Ward, and Sim Sarna. Our editor is Emily Crane. Our music was created by Josh Cook, with artwork provided by Brian Stefanik. Follow us on Instagram at How Not to Raise a Serial Killer, and on TikTok and Twitter at Hentrask. That's at HN. T-R-A-S-K. And if you'd like to share a story or ask a question, you can email us at hownottoraiseaseriallkiller at gmail.com or call and leave a voicemail at 818-392-4403. If you like our show, do me a favor and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. After all, if more people know about the show, maybe fewer kids will turn into serial killers. Who knows? Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. 
With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.